0: starts now. I'm Brian
1: Lambert. I'm John Thaxton and we are the Sales Enablement Insiders. Our podcast is for sales enablement leaders looking to elevate their function, expand their sphere of influence, and increase the span of control within their companies.
2: Thanks John. And for those of you long-time listeners, you heard that right. That was John Thaxton and not Scott Santucci. Actually, Scott's on this uh, podcast with us, but, uh, John, are you ready to do this? Are you ready to go, man?
1: I am. I am absolutely. I am absolutely ready to go.
2: Yeah. Scott, are you excited?
3: You know, I love being surprised, but uh, I'm not really I'm not sure what's going on here.
1: Well, you know, it's uh, it, it's it's pretty funny, Scott. Uh, Brian actually reached out to me earlier in the week and he said, you know, I am really, really just kind of tired of hearing about how Scott defines sales enablement and there's so much debate about it. And it's really just time to put, you know, Scott's original work, Sales Enablement Defined, it's time to put it on trial. And he said, John, I want you to come on the show. What we're going to do today, Scott, is put you on the spot. You, You really wrote the original definition around sales enablement we're 10 years in and uh we're gonna put it on trial and see hey does it stand up uh or uh were there some things that were off so that's what we're gonna do today
2: that's right man you're on trial scott you ready so is this like an evolution or creationism that's right or okay. or, or people or people's court
1: okay
3: <laughs> we'll let our listeners
2: decide yeah but first... exactly
3: i'm not giving that 400 dollars to john no way <laughs>
2: So first, uh, let me, let me he introduce...
3: Didn't, he didn't fulfill his, uh, his duties on uh, filling back my
2: my lawnmower when I lent it to him. <laughs> right. So uh, f- so uh, with this, uh, this is for our listeners. First, let me introduce John Thaxton to you guys um, uh, as our listeners of Insider Nation. Woo! John is with SOAR Performance Group. He's one of the co-founders of it. SOAR Performance Group is a client-focused sales consulting and training company that concentrates on Sales transformation and enablement. John's based out of Atlanta, and let me tell you something cool about him. Uh, when when Scott first uh, had this idea for the D.C. area networking group of sales enablement professionals, or whatever it was called, he put out this call. He gave me a call and said, "I'm going to do this. Um, make sure you make sure you're all over on LinkedIn, and, and uh, we're going to do this uh, networking group." I'm like, "Yeah, man, I'm in." So we we put it out. Scott put it out you know we did our liking and sharing and we started getting people in and all of a sudden this guy john pings me on linkedin i have no idea who john is didn't meet him before in my life and he's like hey can i come to this uh networking group and i was like yeah sure man whatever of course well, a few days before, I don't know, four or five days before, he pings me on LinkedIn again. Hey, I'm coming in I'm coming in from Atlanta. I'm flying in. I had to come in and, and leave on the same day and my flights have me coming in. I might be a few minutes late to the start. So I'm on LinkedIn, my mobile app, you know, I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. But then like three hours later it dawns on me. I'm like, wait, what? This guy's flying from Atlanta. I was like, "Holy cow, this guy's from, from Atlanta!" So I called Scott up. I'm like, "Hey, Scott, we got this guy coming to the DC area networking group from Atlanta." And Scott, do you remember that? That was John, and, and now now he's got you. Uh, he's booted you out of your co-host seat from Sales Enablement Insider Inside Sales Enablement. So, um, well, I love that, and uh, I
3: think there's there's a whole bunch of things going on. So if you're listening to this, I, a couple things to remember: we were trying to just form a local. a local networking group in order to get that going. One of our podcasts, uh, I think it's, I don't know, we can add the episode around that was following up the being heroic framework where we highlight being heroic takes little baby steps of courage to, to just come to help out is exactly the kind of mindset of people that I want to be around with it takes a lot of courage it takes a lot of determination to me it says a lot about uh, John the human being to come in and say hey there's a group of people here looking to do something that I personally believe in I'm going to fly in from Atlanta to help out so immediately there is is, is the world according to Scott John's stock is through the roof for me so I'm really grateful and uh, I'm assuming this is going to be uh, a great experience of uh, getting fired from my co-host job. So, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm still looking in the mirror and tell him, you know, doing my affirmations, you know, I'm a good guy. People like me, my stewards. Gosh darn it. Fired. People like you. Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested in seeing how this goes, but I just wanted to <laughs> stress to everybody um, the way that the society grew were little tiny baby step acts like John, uh, John demonstrated. And, uh, if you're like that, please, uh, join insider nation and
2: find little tiny baby steps to get engaged. There you go. Great words and, uh, well-spoken and, uh, that's how, that's how you grew and that's how you started the society. And that's what got me involved and that's what got John involved. And, and so what we're doing now is, uh, we're going to put Scott on trial, as we alluded to. So here's the roles. So Scott, you're you're the defense. Right. You're just the defendant. All right. And our listeners are the jury. So you're the defendant. John is the prosecutor. So he's going to prosecute you about the report you wrote that I, I was uh, helping you with at Forrester a long, long time ago called Sales Enablement Defined. So since I'm partially biased uh, because I'm a big believer in the report and you know, help you with the peer review, et cetera. I'm going to just be a proxy of the, of our listeners um, representing Insider Nation. So I might chime in. I might ask qualifying questions of either of you through this activity and this interaction. I'll be also summarizing what we're taking away and I'll, I'll provide a bit of a recap at the end as well. Okay. So is everybody clear on their role?
3: Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I love this idea, guys. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever done a podcast to do something like this, so I'm all in. Uh, yeah. I, I,
1: I do want to make one quick disclaimer that none of us are lawyers, and you should not take any legal advice from this podcast for any <laughs> reason. Like we need the legal qualifier. But I want to make sure that no one listening for any reason <laughs> believes that you should take any of this and act on it in any legal capacity whatsoever. Please do not do that.
2: Ba-bum-bum. That's right. Uh, that's how that's how the, uh, That. that's awesome. This is how totally unscripted this is. By the way. All right, cool. So feel like we should have some sort of music. But you know, we'd probably get sued for copyright infringement. So we're just going to jump into it. Uh, we're going to go with uh, opening statements. And uh, we're gonna start with you, John.
1: Well, Scott, I'm gonna I'm gonna open up with just my high level summary, uh, which is your report. I read it. I've read it several times. And the bottom line that I, I got to come come back around to is that definition is smoke and mirrors. It's great in theory, but there's no real examples where we can see it in practice. And on top of that, it's really let down all the stakeholder groups that it was intended to help. What I'd like to do is go through and really dig in, stakeholder by stakeholder, to understand. Hey, based on the past 10 years, based on what happened was the original idea valid and where did it fall down if we're not seeing it happening in real life? So that, that's uh, that's my point of view. Okay. So I had no time
3: to prepare. So this is just going to be, you know, um, part of me wants to say, who the hell are you, uh, to, to make that kind of statement, but I'll refrain from that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) what I'm going to say is uh, what I'm going to say is this, um, there are companies out there that are doing this well if there weren't why would we have listeners today uh the the and then also letting down the stakeholder groups maybe you misread this this is targeted at the c-suite the core uh the core business problem is that the sum of the parts of sales and marketing are wasteful and they need to be coordinated so does that mean each of the individual stakeholder groups whom it seems like you're trying to protect sounds like you're trying to defend a hierarchical siloed based organizational structure. So we can put that on trial too.
1: And right. be- before, before we dive into that, Scott, I do have one question for you before I really dive into the, to some of the, you know, the deeper dives, which is when you wrote the report originally, because I think it's important to always start with a frame of time. I mean, if we think back to 2010, I, you know, if we think back to the, the year 2010, I think I knew like one person that had an iPhone. So that's been a while. What was it that led you to write that report at that point in time?
3: So the driver goes back to we at Forrester held a, a meeting in 2008. So the report that you're referring to is titled uh, August 3rd, 2010. In 2008, we came up with a definition that we wrote. I, I wrote a statement and I had that we had 10 VPs of sales and 10 CMOs in the room from blue chip companies. Um, and the purpose was, let's admit that there's friction between sales and marketing. Let's talk about where the, where the gaps are and responsibilities between the two. And then let's, let's leave the room all agreeing on what a role could look like. So that was that was done in 2000, 2008. The definition was published in a in a report called Engineering Valuable Sales Conversations. Mm-hmm. What we learned was that that definition needed to be unpacked. Mm-hmm. So the purpose of this report was to do two things. One is to provide the business drivers behind why this is happening. And then two, mm-hmm break down each of the different attributes of the definition to provide more Mm. context. Mm -hmm.
2: Can I have a, can I ask a clarifying question on behalf of our listeners, Scott? Yes. When you say, um, when you clarify this is happening, right? So what is this to which you're referring? Uh,
3: Friction, business, business problems, uh, pain, um, uh, lack of execution. So this, by the way, this report wasn't written by me per se. It was based on interviews with companies from Accenture, BMC, uh-huh. Computer Associates, Citrix Systems, uh-huh. CSC, Dell, uh-huh. HP, IBM, uh-huh. NetApp, Oracle, SAP, uh-huh. and Semantic. And it uh-huh. also include, included full-day discussions, both in Europe and in the U.S., with 30 sales and marketing executive, executives representing Alcatel, Lucent, Ariba, BMC Software, Brocade, BT., Capgemini, Cisco, Fujitsu, Gen- hey. uh, G- Gensest, HP, IBM, yeah. Orange Business Services, SAP, Semantic, T-Systems, and VMware. So I am a messenger, not the message.
2: So just the last clarifying question then, just so I have the timeline right for our listeners. You, Scott, held these meetings with executives and uh, CMOs, so you had marketing and sales in a room, and that created an uh, engineering valuable sales conversations view, which is not necessarily not on trial right now. Maybe it will be in the future. Anyway, um, so the, but the second piece of that, of that outcome was this need to clarify and to embrace and, and really confront the execution challenge. And that's the impetus for this report, which was a separate meeting of all those companies that you just you know, named to which you are a mouthpiece for with this definition. Is that right?
1: Yes. Okay. So with that with that, Scott, and, and I probably wasn't clear when I was talking about stakeholder views, because the stakeholders that I'm I'm going to refer to are really the business stakeholders. And one of the things you brought up is it was intended to knock down cross-functional silos. I think you even quoted, you know, in one of your recent podcasts that somebody who's an operating partner that looks over a large number of portfolio companies they are noticing that their sales and marketing spend is not consolidating, is not, you know, becoming more efficient. I would imagine the average CEO, if you ask them today, are you getting a good return on your investment in sales and marketing? They would either scratch their head or they would say no. So the the thesis in the paper, or one of the key theses is, there are too many people doing too many things. We need a way to consolidate all this and spend money smarter. How, what do you say to that CEO or to that private equity investor that says, you know what? We have put sales enablement in place. We have a sales enablement department in our companies, but guess what? Our spend on sales and marketing, it's not going down. It's actually going up and we're being less effective. What do you say to those people? Well, there's
3: two things. So I'm still reacting. I wrote down your bottom line in your uh, your opening statement, John. Um, so I'm being all loyalistic. Uh, the word you said was smoke and mirrors. I I, I I just don't understand how somebody can say a report is smoke and mirrors. A report's a report. This is based on evidence from these different groups. I'd challenge it's the lack of execution inside companies. Mm-hmm. And the lack of execution involves, number one, a failure to do a full uh, inventory or audit of all the spending. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's very common inside, uh, inside organizations is to skip the analysis step for, for in, in sales and marketing for some reason. Just mm-hmm. skip it. But if you go and do an audit and follow a a, a, hidden, cost anal- a hidden cost of sales support analysis and just mm-hmm. inventory, all of, the different, all of the different spends that are going to quote-unquote help sales – And it's not Mm -hmm. just in sales and marketing. It's in product groups, training, Mm -hmm. uh, you you name it. And you put all of that money together and then you divide it by the number of salespeople that you actually do have, the quota-carrying salespeople you do have. What you have is uh, a a totally, incredibly inefficient system. The Mm -hmm. bulk of companies aren't doing that work. Once, When you do do that work, and there are companies who've done that work because I've worked with companies who've done that work. When you do do that work, you actually get to see how big the waste is. The, mm-hmm. the bottom line that I'll tell you, John, is that if you've hired a sales enablement group and you're not seeing a better return on an investment, you probably didn't do a good enough job of figuring out what the root problems are and you're treating symptoms.
1: I'm going to concede the point on that one. Let me ask the next level question down, which is why don't people do that? I mean, if you just look at if you just look at the chart in your report it lays out so clearly and so compellingly. Hey, here's all these different money. Hey, uh, here's all these different money flows, and here's how much you're spending per rep. And anybody with with you know any sort of financial acumen would go, "Oh my goodness, this is just you know this is just not not good." You know, so in spite of that, how is it possible if the evidence is so compelling that people are not willing to do that exercise?
3: So, like literally, this is. Um I'm breaking character a little bit because uh, this is super interesting. John, your opening statement with the smoke and mirrors just so pissed me off. <laughs> and uh, so now I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going to, I'm here to fight. But then when you conceded the point, now you're asking a question that I have to concede a point on. Uh, so it's interesting, like how things happen in, in real life. So uh, this is uh, all like in, 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 real, real life here. So this is really interesting. But I think the, I think that is such a phenomenal question that we need to, we need to unpack more.
2: Yeah, just so we're clear on this because the listeners don't have the report in front of them. This is the table, John, where you've, you've shake out all the costs of supporting a sales team, right? Yes, and, and, and it's, a, it's, it's
1: astronomical. You're like, oh yeah. my goodness.
2: <laughs> and Scott's got these into buckets and he's this is the analysis that he's done on.
1: Yeah, I was
3: gonna describe it. Okay. Uh, good, a little bit, Brian. Yeah. So, thank you. Uh, in, in terms of the, t- the in terms of the table, what we there, there's kind of two two forces happening at the same time. Um, force number one is each different functional group is doing things to quote unquote help sales. Why? Because this, the the CEO and the CFO get off of uh, earner, uh, investor calls and the investors wanna see greater sales productivity. So because activity is the design point, everybody prescribes more things. So for example, you might have in the portfolio group or the business, uh, say the business units, they create more product demos or they create more products even. Um, the acceleration of the number of products is, is, is through the roof or businesses acquire more businesses and slam them together and they create more things. Uh, On the marketing side, there's more and more demand gen and more and more details about for, for, say, for digital today. But, you know, back in the day, it's still like authoring sales guides and playbooks and the like. Uh, When you look at human resources, there's, well, we're going to work on our culture or we're going to work on uh, human development programs and then whether or not uh, uh, training reports into uh, learning and (laughs) development. Sales (laughs) leaders are doing lots of things, too. So, but the point is you have all of these activities and the sum of the parts don't add up to the whole because they're not prioritized. And there is no valve or choke point in there or evaluation point to prioritize all that stuff. So that's one point. Then the second point is when you go on the finance side, because the way companies are organized, they're organized mm-hmm. in a very distributed way. So the finance can't really look at the charts of accounts of all the different budgets. So for mm-hmm. example, I worked, I've worked with multiple companies to identify these hidden costs. And many of them uh, have as many as 30,000 budgets. Think about that. 30,000 budgets that's a, that's a lot of bu- that,
1: That's a lot of budgets.
3: Yeah. How do you figure out where the activities that drive value are across all of those different budgets? And they do those budgets because they want to push decentralization as uh, out there, is, so it's not like it's insane. It, there's a logic for it, but the byproduct of it is a lack of coordination. So there, mm-hmm. so there's there's two variables going on. Number one is most companies don't have the tools to identify where these complexities are. The second mm-hmm. thing is like all human beings, we have this condition called change blindness. Mm-hmm. And change blindness is a condition every single human being has is that when the environment around you is changing rapidly, uh, you don't notice it. And it's, you know, at some point in time, you're that frog that, hey, the water's getting warm, but I don't really notice it until it's 212 degrees and then you're cooked.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's,
3: that's really a, a, that's a condition. And I think the third thing is human beings are also very afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, afraid is a poor choice of words, but it's true of ambiguity and complexity mm-hmm. is ambiguity. And mm-hmm. because you, because people's first reaction to talking about complexity is to resist, there's a tremendous amount of resistance to even talk about this problem.
1: Well, that brings up an interesting point, Scott. And so I'm going to just ask a, a little bit different question here. And what do you say to, I mean, what do you say to that sales enablement leader who read your report, got really excited and said, you know what, I'm really ready to take this on. And went inside their company and said, Hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this happen. I have a whole new vision. And 12 months later, they're nowhere. They have no budget and they have completely failed. You know, what do you say to that person who says, I have totally embraced your idea? I tried it and man, it belly flopped. Uh,
3: Well, so. One of the problems with, with this is I don't have as much feedback of, of the people who just read a report and launched into it. I only have feedback of people who read the report and asked, how should I go about doing it? Right. Yeah. So I don't have that insight. What I do know is the people who follow the, the prescriptions in the report are generally successful because step number one is doing the work to collect the facts to hold the mirror yeah. up to the organization. Mm-hmm. If you don't hold the mirror up to the organization and help them see the problem, and mm-hmm. you just launch in to start doing things, you mm-hmm. are going to get hit with tons of resistance. It's mm-hmm. just human nature. Mm-hmm. So, it, so basically, John, the, the, the issue is the people who read these reports and, and, and try to do it without it, um, the difficulty is you didn't follow the right approach. You, you mm-hmm. just because you see the problem doesn't mean the rest of the organization sees the sees the problem.
1: How how do you illuminate that problem then? If that if that is the core issue is illuminating the problem. I mean, aside from doing the analysis, aside from hiring someone like yourself who knows how to do this, how do you illuminate the problem? You, you, well,
3: um, it's very similar to AA. Uh, It couldn't be more simple than that. Step one is admit you have a problem. That problem is complex. That means get a sense of what complexity really means. Complexity is two dimensions of things. It's interconnected things and lots of things. So -hmm. that means you have to figure out organizationally where are their connection points and where are their failure points and then the second thing, it means taking inventory of all the stuff. And mm-hmm. taking that, doing that step people don't want to do. It sounds tedious. It sounds below your station. But once you put that out there, you can do it. And then the other thing, too, is fanfare, or you have to have some drama. One of my favorite examples was um, – A lot of people think that in order to tackle it, you have to do stuff, but really Mm -hmm. the number one goal is to stop doing things. And my favorite example, uh, this guy, Matt, uh, from a large company, at the sales kickoff, he printed out all of the policies that the company had. So Mm -hmm. it was a stack of maybe, it was maybe two feet. It was huge. And what did he do on that stage? He lit it on fire and said, we're not doing this anymore.
1: Actually lit it on fire. Actually
3: lit it on fire.
1: I'm impressed that the venue facility allowed that. That's pretty cool. I got to well, say.
3: They, uh, they came in and told him not to do it because he did it, you know, on the, it was funny. But any, the point of, of doing that was we're not doing this BS anymore. And right. what happened? Pretty much, because I was there, pretty much every salesperson stood up and, and, and applauded. You could have ended the whole sales kickoff right there. So the, the point is the amount of complexity is uh, death by a thousand paper cuts. Once yeah. you show all of it, it's like putting, if you're a libertarian, it's putting the tax code out in front of you and going, whoa, this is what we're doing to businesses. I didn't know that. So that's, that's step number one of a big win, which is really just to say, let's stop doing things. Um, other, other examples of, of doing that is to actually put together a report of you know, so this is something else that happened less dramatic. Putting together a report and then asking the executives, like put the put the numerator, all the spend uh, of sales costs, and then put the denominator of how many salespeople there are. It forces an amazingly hard conversation. One, where did you get the numerator from? Oh my God. Two, there's disagreement about how many reps there are, and then the denominator. don't even agree how many reps they have. So to me, if you want to be successful, you have to get clarity and clarity starts with raising these kinds of basic issues that don't get raised. When you do that, you're successful Mm because people give you power. Mm -hmm. Hey, this is unacceptable. Let's go fix it. But
0: Mm -hmm. when you
3: don't do those things and start, you know, building, well, let's build the sales process first. Mm -hmm. You don't have support and you're going to get met the the white blood cells inside the company are going to resist any of that change.
1: I think it's time to take the kid gloves off this. So if I read the definition in the paper, mm-hmm. it says sales enablement is a strategic ongoing process that equips all client facing employees with the ability to consistently and systematically have a valuable conversation with the right set of customer stakeholders at each stage of the customer's problem solving life cycle to optimize the return of investment in the selling system. So question I want to ask you is how do you square that with the fact that salesforce.com just came out with a report that said 87% of executive buyers don't find conversations valuable.
3: So we're just supposed to accept that? You're a company, you're the one who's training them, make them better. Like uh, I'm baffled by the question.
1: It's yeah, uh, you, in
3: your control as a business of what output you produce out there. And if executives aren't having value in the output of your salespeople, that's your company's fault. You're producing bad sellers. Or don't sell to executives. I mean, those are your two choices.
1: The other question I would have would be, so what that says to me is that people are not executing well, the definition. So can you prove somebody, can you prove that somebody's doing it? I mean, do you have examples of where people are like real examples, real tangible examples of where people are actually doing it? Yes. Talk me through those. What do they look like?
3: None of them want to share these things because they believe they have competitive differentiation now. So let me walk you through a couple scenarios and maybe those uh, that are doing this will feel comfortable enough to share their stories about how differently they're behaving than their peer class. But uh, some of them look like, hey, we're a, uh, we're a business and we're going to decide how many accounts that we grow. So we're not, when, when we build our growth strategy, we're going to pick 20 accounts to go after. And so the, these are, this is a business that sold big ticket items instead of ramping up or the number of reps or anything like that. And we're going to choose to go at We're going to choose to add 20 accounts to our profile. And that means we're only going to pursue 30 period end of subject. And then everything is about quality about those accounts and saying, look, if we're only going to take 20 in. So if you're one of the 10 that aren't in, you know, tough. And yeah, I, get, that's I, I get
1: that. I get that. And that, that's a, I think that's an interesting use case. There's other
3: use cases. So there's another example of uh, companies that that they break down their sales, their sales uh, organization into a portfolio of revenue streams.
1: Yep.
3: Uh, So for example, uh, a office furniture company has been selling, you know, individual office furniture for all uh, for a long period of time. Then transforming instead of building a P&L around the products, build a P&L around the key accounts, and then assign people to work whether product marketing, etc., all into a all into a flow, a work team assigned to those accounts. So if you look at the if you look at the inventory in the and the breakout, there is more growth potential. They could grow the, they could grow their business two x three x by just concentrating on the top 20% of accounts that meet their, meet their profile. But they have to work in completely different ways than just selling individual products. So you carve that group out, wall them off, so that they can develop their own culture and their own ways of working. That's an example of uh, executing, uh, executing this. And the answer yes. is, was actually simple to do. The hard part was envisioning it.
1: Yeah, I guess the you know I would I would just say that you know people have been having P&Ls around key accounts for a really long time, so I I, I kind of question I kind of question if that's an execution of this definition or if that's a business strategy. Been around for a long time. Back to the the, the question at hand, um, when you think about the definition, well, let, let, we can like, cha- let
3: me challenge that because I've experienced a PL statement around a key account, say it like an outsourcer or something like that. But they don't staff to it. They staff to, they staff to silos. It's virtualized. When we talk about a PL and an org model, it means people are assigned directly to those, uh, to those account profiles. Their job descriptions are rewritten. Uh, how they work is different. Their org structures are different. It's not just a artificial uh, assignment of a PL a- around it, it's really an org model based on that in, t- in terms of an entire revenue stream.
1: I think we'll leave that as agree to disagree. Um, Now, let me get back into something that I think is going to be really relevant for the practitioners of sales enablement. Like why is the definition so long and complex? I mean, if I'm a person that's trying to sell this into my organization, you know, I think Ronald Reagan once said, if you're explaining, you're losing. And you know, your average sales enablement practitioner, how do they even explain what a problem solving life cycle is to their company? Like, what does that even mean?
3: Well, first and foremost, would, would you take a definition of anything and sell it ever? Of course not. That's why you need to build a charter. This is for you. How are you going to execute and how do you know what the pieces are? So the reason that you have a definition is so that you can score out what the, what the pieces are. How would you build an organization if you've never built it before? So the first thing is, how do you frame what it is? It's strategic and an ongoing process. I'll ask you, how many, how many sales and AM1 groups do you see that operate strategically? And then also, once they've done a program, let's say a training event, do they follow up with it and drive reinforcement? Or do they just you know wash their hands and move on to the next thing? So just right there. Um, that's a litmus test then the second thing all client facing employees well you're talking about then you have to work with say customer support people you have to talk about if if marketing people are doing client facing work sales engineers how do you get all of them on the same page so how many how many groups do you know that are doing the hard work to do that And then when you factor in like live chat agents, SBRs, that the sales model has gotten more complex. I think in comparison to what the sales model actually looks like, this is actually a very simple definition, frankly. These are the variables that you have. And if you want to choose to avoid the variables because you don't like complexity, well, you're not in the business of making things simple. The ability to consistently and systematically well, what are your requirements if, if you don't have that as a, as, as, a, as a value add or a quality assurance? To have a valuable conversation. What's the definition of one? If you don't define a valuable conversation, you don't have a spec to build to. That's why only 11% of business executives find the, the, those relationships uh, fitting. Um, there's different, then also a problem solving life cycle. If you engage in a client, you know this, John, if you engage in a client after they've already decided what their problem is, you're just in a bake-off. You might as well just do self-service then. You don't need salespeople because customers already know how to buy stuff that way. Why are we even focusing on buying cycles in the first place? That reinforces it. The differentiation lies, particularly if you're B2B, in helping those executives envision what success looks like. Do you even know what steps they go through to make problem solving and decision making? No. The reason that that has to be a definitional item is because you need to have some meat in order to gain permission from other groups to all have this momentum of thinking they know who customers are, but they don't. Then on top of that, what are you doing this all for? If you don't have a reason to systemat to invest in um, uh, ongoing return on investment, you lose your bigger, biggest power base that there is, the CFO. If you show you're a department that is a good steward of corporate resources, the biggest bully uh, in the group is going to be your friend. The CFO is going to give you so much insight, so much, uh, so much power if you're the adult in the room worried about whether or not we're getting a return on investment on these things. So, you know, if, if, if you want to look at this as a definition that you go and just put up in front uh, of a CEO and say, let's, let's buy into this. Uh, well, frankly, you're not executing. You have to have a plan that encompasses all of those things. Then you have to build the, the tools to sell it, which means you have to do the work beforehand to create the assessment so that you can create the, the vision and the charter. Only 25% of sales enablement people, John, actually create charters. That's a failure point it, this isn't a problem with the definition
1: that makes sense Scott let me switch gears on you a little bit and and ask you to reflect which is when you first wrote the paper until now what is it that you believe has changed and also what is it that believe that you believe hasn't changed because a lot of what we've talked about is all these things remain true at least in your perspective and you have examples of where it's working. And I would say your, your main point on your main point thus far has been that where the promise of the report is not being lived out is due to poor execution rather than poor idea. What ideas that are in the paper do you believe are fundamentally flawed?
3: Well, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say flawed. I would say we need to adjust. So this, um, this report was written off of the heels of the last recession and coming out of that what was hard to predict was the growth cycle that we've become and how driven how much that growth cycle was driven by SaaS. and mm-hmm. so what's happened is uh, and, and that's not even i know that sounds like it's just talking to the tech industry but let's translate SaaS into other industries subscription-based business subscription-based business is uh as it's in entertainment and it's in manufacturing now, there's a whole bunch of industries that are moving to subscription-based models. And in at least in the tech space, what that did is ignited a huge amount of land grab, just growth without any real focus on profitability. So what that did is it, it, coming out of that, that was something that we were unable to, uh, to project or reflect on, is grow, 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 grow. You have to capture market share because you have to be a market leader because the whole business model of a subscription one is having a huge amount of subscribers. And if you're losing a huge amount of subscribers, that's death. And to give a, give a frame of reference to that in different industries, ESPN Uh, I think it was in 2017, 2018, they lost 9 million subscribers. Think about that. Losing 9 million subscribers in one year. Why? Their business model was to do subscriptions through cable providers. And what they did not anticipate was the huge amount of people moving to Hulu or Netflix or things like that. And so their business, one of the reasons that they're really struggling is they are set up to lean on cable providers and then lean on advertisers. But when you're losing eyeballs, you have to shift and, and, and find new ways of doing business. That's a perfect example of how disruptive this whole digital world is, is or, or is becoming. And these are the kinds of things that are hard to see. And they're also really hard to help executive teams see themselves because they're stuck on their own business models. So I would say that that is definitely, um, if I could go back in time and rewrite this, I would would rewrite this to have a better reflection of what the impact of the digital economy is.
2: So guys, we got uh, 10 minutes left of this trial.
1: So the, uh, so, so Scott, you know, I, I, uh, I, mean, what I, what I'm hearing, you know, what, I, what I've heard throughout this, uh, is one pretty consistent theme, which is the problem is not the definition. The problem is that people don't know how to go and execute on the definition. Is that a fair statement?
3: Uh, in, in a trial sense, yes. In terms of like, uh, you know, trying to get to common ground and understanding. I think the big missing point is to clarify why. Why do we have these problems? That's what's missing. This is a a product-based definition uh, for an enablement person to make sure that they're successful. This is not the tool that you put in front of your company and say, this is what we need to do. And it was never designed for that in the first place. We need to have something different, which is here's a business problem. Why? How do we teach people to uh, communicate these issues internally? How do we help highlight the light bulb moments that have to happen before you get to the solution? Because executives just don't see these problems because of the instruments that they're looking at it. They're looking at the problem through the wrong lens, but they feel the pain. We have to do a much better job of, helping them connect the dots between feeling the pain, identifying the business problem, giving it a better identity and making it more accessible. And that's something that I failed completely, uh, (laughs) completely at with this report. I will totally agree with that.
1: So, I mean, I I think what you're saying, Scott, is that like if sales enablement people want to execute on this, they actually need to essentially become good at what they want their people to do, which is, get inside of a company, understand what's going on, build a business case, align with the right stakeholders and create a case for change.
3: Yeah, and to be very specific, what I would say is I would take each line of this definition and see whether you have a clear answer for it and anticipate where you're gonna get pushback from the rest of the organization so that you have a plan. Then that plan, you need to turn it, you need to write it up in terms of your definition of what you want the outcome to be then you need to write up, you know, a staged approach, then you need to start the work of how you're going to sell it. But if you try to sell a, a problem without having a clear plan, once you highlight how much money's spent, the executives tip so quickly to, you know, what's your answer? If you don't have a path forward, you're going to fail, because they're, they're going to say, great, you're poking the bear. Now what? Uh, And they're going to give it, they're going to give the execution of this to somebody else.
1: So why can't, I got one last one before the closing argument on this one. And why can't sales enablement leaders do that? Like you hear, I mean, yes, like you've mentioned some success stories, but if you walk around in the marketplace, there are a lot more failure stories and success stories. So what you're describing makes total sense to me. Why can't, why can't sales enablement leaders do that? Like what's holding them back?
3: Well, I think it's, it's not, I wouldn't characterize it as can't, it's won't. And I think it really comes down to your perspective. If you, in most cases, people get tapped on the shoulder, John, let me tap you on the shoulder. I've got something broken. I want you to fix. And that right there is a tactical result oriented view. Mm-hmm. In order to fix this problem, you have to have a mission and a goal oriented perspective. You need an executive sponsor. You need to make a case. You need to uh, be more inquisitive. So a lot of it has to do with who are the people being tapped on the shoulder. Like if you're waiting for the company to start dictating things, then of course it's going to be tactical and you're being reactive. Uh, So it really comes down to mindset, whether or not you have the the, the skills to go about doing it. And also, do you have enough curiosity to figure out, hmm, how would I go about selling it?
1: That's pretty interesting. So I think, I think what you're describing is the sales enablement leader who's going to be good at this is going to be the same kind of person that would be a good sales rep. I think that's interesting. Uh, so closing argument, and last question, because I think then Brian needs to provide some recap. So even Forrester, the company that published this and redefined it, they don't even use the definition now. So why, why should we, or why should anybody else?
3: Well, I think the, uh, the, the, the question, I mean, that's a fair question. I think if you look, uh, my, ask, my ask of you is to ask yourself, what is Forrester? Uh, does Forrester today, if you look at the profiles of the analysts there, how many of them have a sales background versus a marketing background? Is the definition more suitable or aligned to a marketing perspective? Are they out advocating that marketing should do it? If you notice, John, I don't advocate anybody to own it. I just want somebody to be able to elevate this to a business problem to help the executive committee to solve it. I'm neutral. However, if you look at the goal and the effort around where, where Forrester is, most of the work that they do around B2B is marketing. They have a whole marketing practice that's B2C focused, that's phenomenal. Does B2B, B2C marketing translate into B2B marketing? No. Where do they have a lot of sales leadership? Then on top of that, I would also challenge it even further. Forrester has acquired serious decisions. Serious decisions has their own definition of sales enablement. So um, I think the question is less about this definition and more a question of what's the vision that Forrester has moving forward.
1: My my closing argument is as follows. the report itself is, I think, still valid. There is a huge gap and failure point in creating a mechanism and model for people to execute it. And I think that that's really where all the debate in the world is today. So I don't have a, I don't have a closing argument that says that the report is invalid, that it was the wrong definition, that it was the wrong idea. My main closing argument would be if sales enablement is going to take the next step, there has to be something beyond this that creates a way for people to operationalize and execute on it. Otherwise, we'll be in the same place in 2030. Uh, and that's kind of my closing point of view.
2: So, are you dropping all charges or what?
1: <laughs> uh, am I dropping all charges? I guess. Uh, I guess. I, I guess I'm going to say well, we're, going to, we're going to we're going to we are going to acquit on we're going to acquit on effectiveness of report and convict on lack of uh, next vision for execution how's that
3: that's what you're going to drive to now you don't get to acquit you just get to drop charges or not drop charges
1: as the prosecutor i'll I'll drop i'll I'll drop i'll drop drop the charges on is the report good or not i will you know i think we're going to file a new set of charges on file a new set of charges on uh do we need a next layer around execution how's that
2: uh, great. So Scott, that was, uh, that was John's closing argument. My,
1: my,
3: my defense on that would be, um, first of all, geez, John, that's a, that's a police state that you are. What do you know what the intent is? The report just says defined. That's scope. So I think I've thoroughly de- fairly defended on scope. This report doesn't cover execution models. This report is scope. And the reason that it's, it's on scope is because it's a complex business problem and you need to be really precise on how you execute it. If we wanted to have a different report or review a different report on execution models and everything, I'm game for that. I'll give you a different report. This report scope is scope. (laughs) So, you know, I think the government is overreaching here, but that's maybe that's just me as uh, my libertarian viewpoints.
0: Uh, (laughs) My stance on this
3: is this is fantastic because it creates clarity part of the difficulty that I've observed in this space is we talk about define and what does it mean and clarity, but we're not asking what do we need clarity for? So I think that there's many buckets of clarity that aren't being addressed. So for example, the thing that I was trying very hard to help you on the prosecutor part is I need to be prosecuted more on the why. The, the big epiphany that I've had doing this research process is sales and aim one is a function that's grown dramatically but there's no real business reason why. Where's the why? Mm. If you read any of the vendor uh, uh, in- vendor pitches or go to their websites, it's look at our product, look at our product, look at our product. If you hear anybody who's in the space it's you got to do this, you got to do coaching, you got to do this. You got to do challenger. We are sil- we have such silver bulletitis in the sales and marketing world. But, you know, John, at the end of the day, there's no such thing as werewolves. We're shooting bullets at these phantom uh, phantom, invisible problems well, instead guys, of saying, what's the problem? Clearly, you
1: never watched the movie Teen Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> That's That's
2: oh, so man. Nice. Uh, you know, he's, he's just trying to get in your back pocket, Scott, because he, he knows that you're a sucker for 80s movies.
3: I haven't, though. That's the thing. He got, he got, me, he got me monologuing, and now I'm like, I'm trying to defend my life here. <laughs> but uh, again. Right, so, he,
2: wrap up the closing argument, please.
3: Yeah. So, uh, then there, there's also a definition of what's the market space. Uh, the market space has had hundreds of providers come and go, and they've all faded. Why? Why do we, why do you, why the people who are out there looking for jobs are finding so many different job variations all over the place, but no consistency? Why? Why do people just hire Mm. civil-enabled people and expect magic to happen? There's Mm. this uh, invisible golden box that we're just not getting to, maybe because we're not thoughtful enough, maybe because we're too pressured, maybe it's because the pace of business is too great, maybe it's all of those things, but the thing that I will say uh, I should be convicted on is not enough why. Uh, mm. But as far as the definition goes, I'm mm. willing to stand by this. I think it holds the test of time, even though I'd like to tweak it <laughs> some to, to, to modernize it a bit. Uh, yeah. But I still think it's the best one out there.
2: All right. So we will let the listeners decide. I will say um, the, trial, the trial was uh, adjourned for the day. the month or the year i don't know but i'm gonna wrap this up with some takeaways the first thing though i'm gonna say is i want to thank john and scott for um doing what what i think is a service to the profession so i know that these guys kind of went at it a little bit uh john i know um you're passionate about this topic and, and maybe, you know, you're role playing a little bit and you know, some of these questions you maybe even have, have field uh, uh, as somebody involved in sales enablement, but at the end of the day, we're all still friends and we can still have these discussions and go get a beer afterwards. Right. And I think that's modeling the kind of behavior that we want to see around sales enablement. So before I go to the wrap up, John, Scott, you guys have anything to say to each other before I go to the three-point takeaway?
1: Scott, you can go first. Thanks.
3: Uh, so what I would say is um, this is the kind of debate that we need to be having. This is a complex problem and there's many moving parts. And what we, what we tend to do is we wanna isolate just one piece of it, but if you just isolate one piece of it, what happens is this is an ecosystem type problem and you don't address the other things. So I think part of what we've got to learn to do is to learn how to talk about an ecosystem or a system and learn how to do it uh, that doesn't trigger so much emotion and anger and be more, um, bring more civility, but also a lot of hard questions. In my opinion, the hard questions are what teases out the clarity and uh, if you can have civil discourse, and I, I like the, the lawyer metaphor, I, I'd like us to just, you know, build on that more because you have to make your points and you have to be able to defend it. And the whole uh, legal process about the cross-examination and asking the right questions is really, really healthy. So I, I, I think we should find ways to do more of that and less pontification, yelling it at or, um, you know, bringing other ideas down.
2: Those be that's, a good, that, that's a good point if you guys ever watch these crime dramas on tv the prosecutor and defense are going at it in the courtroom then they go out in the hallway and talk about their kids and stuff in the shows and i'm always like how is that even possible that i'm like i love it because they're all getting along and they're following procedure and they're upholding rights you know they're doing their jobs so that's that's pretty cool john your comments
1: uh, well two things number one first and foremost I want to thank you guys for having me on uh, you guys are obviously two of the world leaders in the space and I was you know honored that you selected me for this uh, this task uh, I hope that uh, my main hope in all this is that you know this will be of service to the community and be beneficial to someone who is wrestling with this challenge and I'm just really grateful to you guys for having me on. And uh, Scott, hopefully, you know, uh, I was playing a role a little bit, but I, I you know, wasn't trying to pick on you. It was really about how do we have a healthy debate? So um,
3: I am a big boy. I love he- healthy debates. My feelings aren't hurt at all. Uh, I just, um, you know, what, what's, a, what's a type of inquiry that, that's useful? I think um, maybe that's a the whole nother show is what kinds of questions can you ask? A lot of people will tell you you need to ask more why questions but when you're in a company and you ask a why question you can get slammed
0: so how do you know
3: when's the right time when you can ask a why question versus when you can't
2: uh so yeah. there, it, it, like it, why are we doing that it's very confrontational and you get slammed you know right. it's not there's a way in which to deliver it there's a timing piece around it yeah so being aware
3: of when you can ask why what I've noticed is that people who have more of a tactical or consider themselves more pragmatic, the time to ask questions, they've been given the floor to ask questions, but they don't think they can or they can't come up with the questions or they can't envision it. And they ask questions, you know, kind of too late, like in the middle of execution. And then management's like, why are you asking me this question now? I get that. We asked that question six months ago, how could you not be prepared? So I think part of this is having much more empathy about, and, and I've, I've sort of called this, um, sympathy for the devil, you know, management. I hear a lot of work, a, a lot of talk about what management needs to do to help me as a director level or something. Yeah. Like
1: well, that. you know, it's also, it's also my job to help management understand how, why they should help me. So exactly. that's, a other, that's a whole other topic.
3: Yeah. So I think that there's <laughs> a, a lot of, um, misunderstanding across different groups, that uh, I think we probably need to tease out. I think everybody everybody that I encounter in this ecosystem wants things to be better. So find a way to start there instead of finding a way to where we can point fingers at each other.
2: So my three points real fast that I wanna give, one is print the definition, it's in the show notes. I'm gonna print this, the definition of sales enablement in the show notes, we're gonna put that there, make a line by line inventory and make sure you can answer the questions there. To take a long, hard look and uh, think about this deeply. But if you are in a sales and ailment role and you're a listener of this show, you need to reflect on, do you have a skill problem or a will problem? And uh, that discussion around skills and, and will um, is an important uh, distinction here because Scott laid out his argument that he believes it's more of a will piece. And then he backed it up and said, you need skills to do that. So just expecting management to give you the the charter and the funding and things like that—that's—that's that's not going to work. You've got to be able to have both the mindset and the skills to go up and get what you need. The third thing, the last thing is—is is who are you talking to, and uh, where are your inputs coming from? It's really important in a time like this that you think deeply about where where your sources of information are, and how that sources of that, that information is is being vetted through what lenses. Um, there is going to be you know a, a huge uh, ch- change and challenge in the, in the coming years uh, around sales and marketing. It's a, it is, it is a done deal. Yeah. It will change. Um, so with that in mind, we invite you to come on May, um, May 19th to the, the readout and the findings of the sales state of sales enablement research report. You can see the whole methodology. When you go to dot slash research, you can see all of the, the panelists, all the companies, That Scott's been interviewing. You can also uh, listen to all the podcasts. There are six panels that we went through um, to to hear that. So even if that May 19th is already passed and and you're listening to this a year later, make sure you listen to these, these panels and engage us around that topic. I want to thank Scott for uh, going on trial. He had very little. I told him to print the report and uh, uh, be ready. And uh, I think he was. And great job, Scott. And John, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, once again, when you flew up from Atlanta and just engaged, um, that's what I asked you to do here was, you know, just have fun with it. And, and you did that. And I really appreciate you, John, putting yourself out there. So on behalf of uh, uh, Insider Nation, John, thanks for, for being an insider. And
0: uh, we'll see you guys on the next podcast. Take care. Thanks for joining us. To become an insider and amplify your journey, make sure you've subscribed to our show. If you have an idea for what Scott and Brian can cover in a future podcast or have a story to share, please email them at engage at insidese.com. You can also connect with them online by going to insidese.com, following them on Twitter, or sending them a LinkedIn request.